churches, both individually and collectively, naturally develop a culture. A culture is a set of values. It's a pattern of doing business. It's an approach, a fundamental approach to doing and being church. And when that culture captures and encodes the mission of the church to make disciples, to introduce people to the faith, baptize new believers, and teach them to obey all that Christ commanded, then culture is a very valuable tool for the kingdom. When culture becomes more important to us than the mission of the church, when it is valued above the gospel, then church culture hinders the advance of God's kingdom. In the 1930s and 1940s, flawed theology and thinking led the majority church culture in Germany to accommodate, excuse, and embrace Nazism, counter to everything that Jesus lived and died for. In this country, churches in the South, notably Southern Baptists, twisted scripture and warped theology to justify brutal slavery, valuing culture and economic privilege over the freeing of the gospel and the disciple-making mission of the church. And this legacy of choosing culture over the gospel has left scars on the church collectively that have never fully healed. And so when church culture, the, the customs, the traditions, the attitudes of those who are within a church or a group of churches, when these things are pressuring us to conform to the mores and the practices of those who are either inside the walls of the church or those who are outside our walls. And it is in contradiction to the mission and values of the true bride of Christ. It is a sin. A church must be careful to never permit culture or tradition to trump the mission of making disciples of all nations and all peoples, regardless of background or walk of life. And whenever a church does this, or the church collectively does this, we depend on God to raise up people to confront the church, to confront its leaders, to confront its members with this sin. The Apostle Paul was one such individual who was raised by God to protect and preserve the mission of the church against a toxic first century church culture that was undermining the gospel. The confrontation is described for us in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now we're going to dig into the details of this conflict and the example that Paul set for us as a church and as individual Christians, in confronting Peter's cowardice and hypocrisy. But but the bottom line of this passage is that we must confront any church culture undermining church mission. 
Let me just say that again. We must confront any church culture undermining church mission. It seems that Peter, who had pioneered the evangelism of the Gentiles in Acts 10 and 11, visited the church in Antioch. And there, when he arrived, he shared table fellowship with with all the Christians in this thriving, young, multicultural, diverse church, because long since he had learned that God's good news was for everyone. Peter had reaffirmed this truth, right? Last week we were in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and we see at the end of it, Peter reaffirms this truth at the end of his second meeting with Paul. And so, of course, when Peter visited this church that's full of new believers from every background, right, they all naturally ate as one body. As verse 12 explains, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But everything changed. Once that group of Jerusalem church members came from James. Now, I want to be clear. They were not sent by James. Acts 15.24 says, Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. Right? James disavows these people. But who they were was a group that was very conservative, very old-school Jewish Christians who apparently identified themselves closely with James, the brother of Jesus. And upon their arrival, Paul tells us that that Peter became afraid to eat with the non-Jewish Christians because that was violating the traditional Jewish dietary laws that were still being observed by these, by these visitors. Right, Members from his own church come to visit, and Peter backs off. Verse 12 concludes, But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Right, Peter broke table fellowship with Gentile Christians, out of fear of his own church members. And it's not clear what Peter was afraid of. right? Maybe he was afraid of public condemnation by these Christians who are uh, still obsessed with saving themselves by, by rule following and tradition following. Or maybe he was afraid it was going to turn into a big deal, it was going to be a controversy, or there might be a, a church split that would be stirred up by these sour-faced pseudo-Christians. Or maybe he was afraid for them. Maybe he was afraid that in their spiritual weakness, they'd fall away from the church if they saw him eating with Gentiles. We don't really know. Regardless of this, Peter knew the truth. He knew that he could eat with anyone. He could eat anything for the glory of God. And Paul reminds him of this, of the very way he had lived his life for years in verse 14. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. And yet Peter did not have the courage of his own convictions. In the face of potential controversy from the cultural conservatives within his own church, he ignored the truth of the gospel, that in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile. As a leader, he sets an example that begins to lead the other Jewish Christians, the one who'd been in the church of Antioch for years, who'd been fellowshipping with their their brothers and sisters from Gentile backgrounds for years. He leads them astray. He even leads astray Barnabas, the great encourager, right? The one who had, who had vouched for Paul when no other Christian was willing to accept him. 
Barnabas is led astray. Right? You can, you can kind of hear it. The, the disappointment as, as he is leading all of these people to cave into the pressure from the old guard. Verse 13, sadly marvels and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is a word. It has a history from Greek drama, but it is, it is knowing and believing one thing, but speaking or acting differently. In Greek drama, it describes wearing a mask to hide who you really are. You see, everyone who was involved in this controversy, who drew away, who broke table fellowship, they knew better. These Jewish Christians in Antioch knew salvation came by by grace through faith in Christ alone. They knew they were free to fellowship alongside every other believer, and yet they, they were bowing to cultural pressure within the larger Christian community Pressure within their church. And so they hypocritically shunned their Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ. And we don't really know where Paul was when it first sort of broke down, when the, when the table fellowship broke down and, and Peter drew back in fear. But, but when he came upon it, when he saw it, we, he knew immediately that it was wrong. And he says that he got all up in Peter's face about it. Right, verse 11, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Right, Paul called out Peter's hypocrisy, and he did it in public because Peter was leading others astray. Verse 14 says, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles? To live like Jews, and that word that live like Jews really is to Judaize, to become Jews. Peter and the others were violating the very heart of the gospel. Right? This wasn't about table manners. This is about the heart of the gospel because we aren't saved by good works or by ethnicity or rule following or obedience to cultural customs and traditions. Right? This wasn't some secondary dispute about customs, traditions, and practices within the church, because it's okay for Christians to disagree about those secondary issues of, of custom and practice. But, but this, no, this was at the heart of it, because this was about the very faith and fellowship of the Christian life. This is about the fact that in Christ there are no second-class Christians. Every believer, no matter their age, their reputation, their background, their ethnicity, their social status, their work history, or their nationality, is equally a son or daughter of God, adopted by God's grace the moment he or she put their faith in Christ as Lord and Savior. And this is a truth that we need to absorb and reabsorb quite often, because, because it seems like we all, struggle with holding on to this truth, right? We wouldn't ever deny it out loud, but, but we, the way we live our life sometimes indicates that, that we are struggling to hold on to this truth. There are no second-class Christians. All too often, church culture pressures us to compromise the gospel in these ways. Peter's actions violated the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which says that none of us are more worthy or deserving of God's love and mercy because each of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
Right, every one of us who's here this morning sinned before we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Every one of us has sinned since we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And if we're really honest, every one of us has probably sinned in the last seven days. It comes in all different forms. Maybe it was a cruel or angry word spoken to a loved one. That's a sin. Maybe it's a hateful thought or deed towards somebody who's in need or somebody who's, who's radically different from us. That's a sin. Maybe it's something you watch that you shouldn't have. That's a sin. Maybe it's something immoral, unethical, or illegal that took place at work. That's a sin. I could go on and on, but I won't. The point is we all sin and fall short of God's glory and standard. He made us to be better than we are. And yet, because we chafe and we, we buck and we struggle and we fight against his standard, we are not who he made us to be. And so we need to get off thinking of, of ourselves as being that much better and realize that none of us deserves the love and the grace and the mercy of the eternal God of the universe. And yet he gives it to us anyway, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. Right? He is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so because that's who He is, He made a way for us to have our sins forgiven, have our guilt and shame washed away, and to be able to enter into His presence now and forevermore, despite ourselves. He made this provision through His eternal and sinless Son, Jesus, who voluntarily stepped into this messy and fallen world in which we live. Voluntarily took on a, a human nature and a human body with, with some of those limitations and, and, and some of the, the temptations and the suffering and the pain that we experienced that He never would have experienced. Voluntarily living a sin-free life and then voluntarily going to his death on a Roman cross to take upon himself the enormous crushing burden of all of your sins and all of my sins and all of the sins of the world throughout the past and the present and the future. And on that cross, he took all of our sins and he took all of God's anger for our sins, sacrificing his innocent life to pay the penalty for us. And through his sacrifice, all who embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior receive the forgiveness that we can't ever earn, that we don't ever merit, that we don't ever deserve. We receive the benefit of what is literally the greatest unfairness in the history of the universe. That the sinless Son of God died for our sins. There are no better or worse people. In Christ, we are all sinners saved by God's grace. Right? We are all messes made clean and whole by Christ. We are each a new creation in Christ, as Galatians 2.20 proclaims. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so for this reason, we are all equal in Christ. There are no better Christians or worse Christians. There are no first-tier Christians and second-tier Christians. Because this is God's good news for everyone, no matter who you are, no matter, no matter where you're coming from, no matter what your, your past or your shame or your suffering or your pain, 
might include, because we are all sinners saved by God's grace, messes who received mercy, and yet Peter treated the Gentile Christians as different and lesser. He broke table fellowship with them, and in the ancient Near Eastern culture, that is huge. Verse 12 tells us that when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. See, Peter was afraid, and he compromised the gospel of Jesus Christ because of fear. And let's be honest, Christian leaders still feel this kind of fear today, as they have for 20 centuries. Pastors, church leaders, and Christian thought leaders still live in fear of those we lead, right? Just Look at the, if you, if you follow these things, at the awkwardness and the uncomfortableness and the challenge of any Southern Baptist leader who is struggling for the past two weeks about what to say publicly about Paige Patterson, the president of Southwestern Seminary. We can fear opposition to change. We can fear to speak the gospel into social or political issues that we know church culture holds to more tightly than they do to the gospel. We can fear the reaction we'll get if we, if we start becoming successful in growing the kingdom of God and, and church culture rejects the wrong sort that suddenly starts showing up on Sunday morning to their church. Christian leaders can fear other leaders, big givers, vocal or long-standing members, right? Or we can fear the perception that we are soft on the Bible simply because we love sinners. And the lesson from Paul is that every Christian leader needs to be courageous for the gospel. Every Christian leader must be on guard for inconsistencies between church culture and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must each choose to stand tall with Paul rather than shrinking back with Peter. But, but it's not just about leaders. Because in truth, every believer has a role to play in protecting the gospel from a church culture that works against it. Because every believer is tempted, can be tempted by the same kind of fear. If we truly have an awareness of what the gospel is calling us to do and to be in this fallen world in which we operate because it will look different than what is expected in conservative church culture. Right? We, we often value the approval of others in our church circles, right? Friends, our deacons, Sunday school teachers, leaders, pastors, right? And so, so we are tempted to value the approval of church culture over God's approval. Or we think the two are always the same, or we confuse the two. Right? It can be over issues of clothing or hats or tattoos or music style or facial hair. Or maybe it's over the way we live or we give or the way we raise our kids. On the one hand, it could be that we, we value the approval of more conservative believers. And so we feel pressure to only hang out with those who, who dress, act, sing, and recite scripture the right way. Or maybe our temptation's on the other side, right? We want to, we want the approval of countercultural Christians. Right? The edgy, cool Christians. And so we feel pressured to seem more edgy ourselves in our faith and our practice. We, we mindlessly shun or insult tradition for no good reason. Right? So we need to be people who are evaluating constantly. Is a particular rule or, or style or practice genuinely important? Or are we just doing it as a way to try and earn points and acceptance within church culture? 
Is it something that's truly important, or is it something that's leading us to act counter to the gospel as Peter did? Like Paul, we must be looking, and when we see that issues of culture and preference, politics or tradition within a church or within a movement or within a denomination conflict with accomplishing the perpetual mission of the church, we need to see that and we need to confront that when these things block the advance of the gospel. Like Paul, we must confront any church culture undermining church mission. And while we do it, we need to obey the processes outlined in the Bible, right? But we must confront anyone, leader or member, who's acting hypocritically against the truth of the good news of the gospel for everyone. Very few people in the Christian church would actually articulate that we are saved by works. And yet, for so many of us, our attitudes, our conversations, our backbiting, our gossip, our words, our actions, they... The way we, we look and speak about people who are different or churches that are different often indicate that while we may be saved by grace, we have no grace to show anyone else. And we need to confront this when we see it in ourselves and we need to confront it when we see it in other believers. Unhealthy church cultures refuse to see our brothers and sisters in Christ as God sees them. Right? And these kinds of cultures can exist within individual churches. They can exist within movements. They can exist within entire denominations. Or they can exist within pockets inside otherwise healthy churches. Many of you have shared with me stories about growing up and, and having to leave legalistic churches with toxic cultures that were dividing people up based on their, their appearance or their race, their nationality, their, their adherence to a checklist of behaviors. And the point is that we must always be looking carefully at our culture and at, at all the subcultures and pockets within the Lake Ridge Baptist Church and within the Southern Baptist Convention and within the, the larger evangelical movement, whatever that's even coming to mean in America. And wherever there is culture that's running counter to the gospel, we need to identify it and we need to confront it courageously. This means we need to think hard. We need to think often. We need to take seriously the truth of the gospel, that there are no second-class Christians, that there are no children of God whom he loves more or less. That through the gospel of Jesus Christ, no matter what your background is, right, your past, your shame, your guilt, your personal history, they are unimportant in God's eyes, and so these shouldn't matter in our eyes either. Rich or poor, black or white, male or female, native or immigrant, working or unemployed, mansion dweller or homeless person, it does not matter. Every child of God is an heir of the king. Every Christian is a first-class citizen of heaven. So when a leader like Paul leads the flock astray, forgets the gospel and embraces the culture, we have to confront them. Did I say Paul? I said meant Peter. We must confront them like Paul. And it's interesting to see, because Peter was the senior-most apostle, but that did not stop Paul from getting in his face. Right? Christians don't get to stand on seniority, experience, or power when it comes to the gospel. Like Paul, we must courageously confront the anti-gospel publicly if it's a leader who's leading others astray. We must be courageous for the gospel. 
If you were to go into any of the four ministers' offices here at Lake Ridge, you would find a framed covenant that we recently signed. There are ten commitments on it, but two of them read as follows. We commit to create that team by maintaining team confidences, by being deliberately thoughtful, courageously honest, tenaciously engaged, intentionally encouraging, and abundantly gracious in all our team interactions. And we commit to being accountable to one another for the conduct of our ministry and our adherence to this covenant, right? We are committed to be Paul if one of us has become Peter. This is a commitment we all need to make, right? If it is a member of the congregation or the community whose adherence to customs and habits, attitudes, traditions, or processes that undermine the gospel, every person present must be willing to confront them, beginning privately as described in Matthew 18. And realize, it's okay for a church or a denomination to have traditions or customs that are particular to it. There's nothing wrong with that. right? There's nothing wrong with them, even if they seem odd or a little out of date. Who cares? But if they treat people unequally or if they prevent the spread of the gospel, they're not okay. Human-created church culture can undermine our God-given church mission to make disciples of all nations. For the Lake Ridge Baptist Church, our mission looks like becoming a lighthouse church that genuinely welcomes in everyone, builds up everyone in the likeness of Christ, and sends everyone out to reach out indiscriminately to those who are far from God. And we need to be constantly guarding this mission and this vision, continuously evaluating our church culture. Does it support making disciples, or is it preventing it? And whenever the answer is prevent, that custom, tradition, or piece of culture got to go. When we're successful in living out this mission and vision, I guarantee it's going to confront our church culture. That we will be tempted to say terrible things, or at least think terrible things, like, well, that's unusual. They're different. They don't really belong in this church. Where are their parents? They're kind of rough around the edges. They need to learn how to fit into church, or I don't want their children around mine. And we need to catch ourselves and confront ourselves when that happens. Because may God have mercy on us if we don't learn to genuinely welcome in, build up, and reach out with the good news of Jesus Christ for everyone. Now you've already to hear about our local community outreach in September. You're going to hear lots more. This is an exciting thing. But if we're successful, I suspect there'll be some uncomfortable things that come out of it. And soon you're going to start to hear more about something called The Way, which is an initiative for us to send small teams out from LRBC to quite literally take church to the unchurched around us. The way is coming, and I'll be sharing more about it as we move from this initial prayer and discernment phase into planning and implementation. And if the way is successful, it's going to seem weird. It's going to seem different. It's going to seem uncomfortable. It might even seem sketchy. But over time, I pray that it will be increasingly effective at reaching those who are very different from us. The ones that in our minds we might be tempted to call the wrong sort, but who are really God's sort. Right, the sinners and tax collectors of our 21st century world. 
We must never let barriers of church culture prevent us from accomplishing the mission of the church, of going to the lost, the last, and the least, and sharing the gospel with them, sharing life with them, celebrating when they come to faith, even when they have rough edges. And I pray that each of us would have the insight and the courage of Paul to identify and confront anything about our church that conflicts with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you have appointed us to be stewards of the gospel, the great good news that through faith in Christ and through faith in Christ alone, by your grace, we have been saved from our sins. And Lord, all too easy it is we just get caught up into a sense of who's right, who's wrong, who's worth sharing with, who's not worth sharing with, who fits in, who doesn't fit in, Lord. And as we see from Paul's confrontation of Peter, that is sinful. So Lord, if there is anything in our hearts that that smells like what Peter was doing, if there is any practice within our church that is or someday will be like what Peter was doing, I pray that we would repent of it, And end it immediately, Lord. Lord, I pray that you will help us to be faithful to be this lighthouse church, to reach those who are very far away from you, Lord, who are very different from us, that we would do it for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.